0: the Sunday Morning Linux Review with Mary Tomich, Tom Lawrence,
1: and Tony Bemis as the Beaver. And welcome to episode 278, Will Zip Slip Cause a TL Bleed? Listen and find out. (laughs) This is Tom Lawrence and Phil Parada. The rest of the crew is uh, preoccupied with other personal matters, and uh, they have to be in different places that are not allowing them to be here. Uh, but me and Phil are going to do the show today, and uh, there's a lot going on. So we, you know, our last show was uh, Microsoft bought GitHub, and the world was coming to a colossal end for all people.
0: Uh, it was a catastrophe. It was a
1: catastrophe, and we covered that. So uh, we're going to not dwell too much on that, but what I wanted, I will plant this in the head for maybe in a few weeks or a few months from now, I want to know what the activity changes were. Like someone could look at GitHub and GitLab and see how many people migrated over, what are the stats from before and after this announcement, like the the long-term. Because everyone techno-panics whenever anything happens.
0: It was really cool that the GitLab team has an open uh, Grafana instance, so you could see the uh, project imports and issue imports from GitHub to GitLab. Yeah. Um, for the... The days uh, following uh, the acquisition notice.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so there's uh, there's that. And I, I think that's going to be a fun debrief to see how much of panic is real. Like, <laughs> 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 I'm, you know, it's all the people that if this thing happens, I'm never using that product again. And then a year later, hey, you still got that same phone.
0: <laughs> now, every time I do go to GitHub and I see that rainbow unicorn telling me that the server's overloaded, I I can now shake my fist at, at Microsoft. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, since that recording, uh, what have you been up to, Phil? Um, taking it day by day. Lots and lots of work projects. Um, owning a house is no small list of chores and, yeah. and tasks.
1: And, and Phil bought the farm.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a reason, Tom. Now that I've I'm turned older into and a wiser. Damon.
0: I mean, yeah, I'm older and
1: wiser. <laughs> now I, I want a condo. <laughs>
0: I uh, yeah. ha- had celebrated my birthday. Um, my wife and I bought a Nintendo Switch. Ooh. So I've been deep into Mario Odyssey. That game's fantastic. Yes.
1: it It is good. That's uh, I think an important aspect is uh, tech burnout is real. There's a reason you just go offline once in a while. Uh, <laughs> that way you can work hard and go, wait a minute, I need to debrief and play some Odyssey. And I, I say go offline, but I mean, playing video games is because you, you're you taking a break from what you're actually doing. So. <laughs> I've been uh I found I discovered Destiny the game Destiny 2.
0: Yeah, how do you uh, like it?
1: I am now addicted. I can't countless hours have been spent on that game. I'm not going to use the word wasted because I've enjoyed it greatly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Humble Bundle subscriber. Uh I recommend if you're into games at all, it's a it's a pretty cool thing and Destiny was on my Humble Bundle and I'm like, "Oh, let me play this game." And I I've, I've been disappointed in a handful of the other games. This game has not disappointed. So um, two expansion packs in in looking at the third
0: <laughs> and that's on the playstation
1: 4 no nope that is on a pc game oh okay yeah so i am it not linux i maybe it's linux support i doubt it um but it's just a wonderful game
0: so speaking of linux support for gaming i have some good news coming up later in the show for that
1: oh good uh i've also heard you've been uh playing around with ha proxy quite a bit
0: yes i have um uh, I've come to like it. I like the draining features on, on it. So you can tell HAProxy, hey, let's drain traffic from a particular set of servers. And it will no longer send requests to those servers. So then you can do your maintenance, re-enable them, uh, re-enable those drained servers, and then move on to a next set of servers to do your maintenance. Okay. All the while still serving traffic.
1: I've looked briefly at it in PFSense, and it seems to have some pretty cool tiering features um, with the PFSense interface. So I don't know if you have – have you played with it in PFSense at all? or Not Not yet. Um, I, I may do some videos or discussion on it because it's got some of those features where you can just, like, check boxes and say, hey, take this out of service because I want to do maintenance. And you can take it in and out of the pools with simple uh, check boxes. I don't know how good it works, uh, but I might do some playing with it. So,
0: Cool. We – we did receive an email from uh Philip Cook asking for h a proxy help I've not forgotten about you okay <laughs> uh, don't worry, I will email uh, some help back to you
1: yes <laughs> we'll get we'll get there <laughs> We'll cover that in the feedback. I think that was actually the only feedback we have. yeah, we can probably skip the feedback because i don't i, I didn't see any other feedback neither have I okay um, so it's been fun the last uh Fun things. And actually, at your feet somewhere, Phil, this is the first bit of fun because it's very recent, is a processor I dropped on the floor. Don't worry, it's dead. It's got an X on it. That's how we know it's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So everyone thinks it's a thermal event, which normally processor death, uh, especially of a Xeon, uh, is a thermal event. But it turns out our uh computer our server here at the office was angry on sunday um it wouldn't turn on and uh it said processor one bad which we thought that's that's horrible <laughs> and uh the good news is there's two of them and by removing one of them it uh continued to function with half as many cores but uh kind of a weird problem and uh we used server monkeys where we bought it from and they overnighted a processor to us we dropped it in and problem went away but it was kind of strange because our server is exceptionally clean we noticed there was no dust no thermal event and uh it eh, just kind of one of those weird things i've never seen a zeon die. they said it happens but they see it because that's what they do they're the warranty people for things like that so good for warranties which i don't usually buy but they gave me a really good deal on it so (laughs) um but it's one of those things uh when that happens like we all have an idea of like our disaster recovery plans, but do you have a disaster recovery plan that you've ever tested? I actually test mine, so the procedure was really easy. We have a backup VM machine. We turned it on. We spun all the VMs up on there, and we continued about our day until the processor arrived, and we put it in, and then we moved all the VMs back. Uh, we used the Zen server based on the XCPNG open source, and that the whole process was uneventful and boring and not even panic-stricken, which that, is good. That sounds like the perfect plan. It, it is. It's just we move them over to one, we move them over to another. And we decided, though, our uh, it heated up the back area. We have an Opteron server. Now, Opterons are not thermally efficient. It kind of feels like a blow dryer on high heat blowing out of the back of it.
0: Especially with the high heat we've been having this past week. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, so
1: we decided uh, because the... Uh, server we have is so efficient, the newer one, we actually found a company, Locals, uh, auctioning them off on eBay. So we just bought another duplicate of our server uh, with no warranty, really cheap on eBay, because we got one nice one with a warranty, and then this will be our new backup server. And the other backup server we'll just put on a shelf. Like, it's a backup backup server. I just don't what to do with it, other than it's so thermally inefficient, I don't like having it on. <laughs> but <laughs> those are first world problems. It has like th- uh, 32 gigs of RAM in it and everything. That's the way we have it, but it's like, oh, it's so slow and hot
0: <laughs> we should run some sort of cpu testing tool to fire up every single core and then see what we can cook on it
1: yes uh even without that the, even like the Northbridge connector has a massive heatsink and then the uh, power regulators at the back so the fan blows over it that thing is so hot it'll almost burn you the power regulator on, just from turning it on before you do the cpu load testing
0: Maybe, for a future show, can Linux cook hot dogs? can Linux tune,
1: cook hot dogs? tune in to find out i, I you know what um because we'll probably have decommissioning the motherboard, and that might be a fun experiment. <laughs> How hot can it get before it explodes, and we'll just set it on the table and we'll cook something on it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it um, other than that, it's been a bunch of uh miscellany projects and you know all the fun stuff, lots of wi fi we did a fun wi fi testing video where uh, there's a fast food place, and me and Phil Mills were this because he walked there with me down the street uh, to Raleigh's. We were able to use cars as mesh access points. And why cars? Because they have 120 volt. Our cars have 120 volts in them. So we plugged in mesh adapters uh, from Unify, and we hopped all the way to Raleigh's <laughs> with the Wi-Fi <laughs> because we wanted to see how far the range was on the mesh. So uh, that's been really cool. And good news is, because there's no cameras in here, so you can't see something, uh, Phil can see it. There's a big box on the floor that we're under NDA that uh, to open. It's from our friends at uh, Unify. We're testing some of their newest devices, and after this show, I will show Phil, but uh, there's some new products that they have that are incredibly powerful Wi-Fi. They've released uh, one of the products on their uh, website already. This is another one that's going to be an upcoming release, so... Um, But Unify is not just coming up. They claim to have the world's most powerful access point. The new one they just released supports 1,500 users on a single Wi-Fi device. So they've done some neat technology, and that's why we've been playing so much with Unify and doing the experiments with it and uh, how much speed can you get out of it, how much range can you get out of it, and uh, it's just been a lot of fun. Wi-Fi is interesting.
0: Speaking of ubiquity gear, um, I have some friends that do ham radio, and certain... uh, mesh access points and uh, receivers, I believe you can flash with custom firmware you can so that way you can use them for uh, software defined ham radio yeah um
1: side note about the ubiquity hardware so there's a couple of companies that are bigger and more popular like in the wireless ISP market they know a lot of people because unify has some of the less expensive hardware become where people start, but unify's software is still up and coming to scale to the, to the very large, like I have a million WISP user-type systems. because That's part of the reason Unify supports custom firmwares. The company says, no problem. Well, you, you built with a Unify network, but now you're ready for us uh, and our stuff you can actually go in and flash their software onto the Unifies, and it'll mate with their controller software for Wist. So if you upgrade, you can keep your Ubiquity hardware but move over. And I thought that's just kind of clever. But in, the only reason you would ever allow custom firmware flashing is because you are aware people want to use your devices beyond what you wrote for them, and that's something they leave open. You can write custom firmware and send it to them. I think that's just kind of a novel approach to being an open kind of company like that. So, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Oh, uh, they also added uh, a feature. If you, um, I don't know if you noticed this because I know you run some of the Unify stuff. Uh, you can drop your SSH keys in now right through the uh, control interface and send it to all the devices at once. So if you have a 1,000 uh, devices oh, on Oh, that's network, really nice. Yeah. You can just uh, paste in your key, put in what username you want mated that key, and then you can SSH into all the individual devices, and it's uh, automatically pushed. And every time you adopt a new device, it automatically puts your SSH keys in. That's a cool feature.
0: <laughs> Do. You- uh, do they support anything other than RSA and ECDSA keys? I've, I've I been, noticed you had an ECSA key. Uh, yes. I've switched my entire house over to using uh, ED25519 keys mm-hmm. and then reconfiguring all of the uh, SSH daemons uh, to also support... That's that. the
1: elliptic curve one, right? Um, that's the... I, I remember looking it up because so I noticed when I was putting your keys in... Uh, That that was thing. You know, we we got to do. We can even do an episode on this uh, SSH management and key management and different key types and why you use them. I think that that's going to be before we get too off topic on it. I think that's going to be a great uh, discussion.
0: (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, So I've been I've I've switched over the house and all of my servers to start using that, and then also implemented um, SSHFP. So that way, uh, if DNS changes um, you don't have to keep getting the error that hey, uh, DNS has changed someone might be attacking your server Ah. the other thing um,
1: kind of related so we did an interview with Michael Lucas uh, author of the book SSH Mastery And just, you know, his book is such a great deep dive into SSH. I admitted that I was Larry King in the interview and I had not read that book, (laughs) 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 which he found funny. Um, But uh, one of the things he worries about, he's really concerned about SSH. He says, anytime there's a monoculture, there's a problem. And just, he says, not that there's any known problems with SSH. He goes, but imagine someone finds a hole. He goes, everything is built on SSH. And uh-huh. all this infrastructure and Ansible and all these amazing tools all use SSH as the control system. And he goes, "That's scary." He goes, "Just he goes in its cross-platform." He goes, "It's in the BSD community and in the Linux community." He goes, "Monoculture's bad." He goes, "That says he's very strong." He goes, "Much as he's wrote about it, that's his big concern right now is you've we've just adopted like this is it and nothing else is it." And he goes, "That's a problem." <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting insight from his thoughts on that. So. You're, Phil's probably going, yeah, but I like it.
0: <laughs> I do, but there's nothing stopping me from wrapping my SSH traffic inside of like OpenVPN or WireGuard yeah. or something like that. Yeah, putting a VPN in front of it, and um, it's all about all about layers. But to yep. to the average uh, computer user, how many layers do you want to learn about and implement? It becomes. Uh, sometimes can become a hassle.
1: Yes. And a lot of people kind of go, just tell me what's the latest secure thing I should be doing. <laughs> and I don't blame them, because unless you are intrinsically interested in doing this, uh, like me and Phil and other people in the Linux community are, uh, you just kind of want to go on about your day. <laughs> but it's okay. We'll keep you safe. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to skip the feedback, because the only feedback was about a G Proxy. It's the only feedback I've seen. Um, yep. Uh, okay. Making sure. And we'll move on to... Distro Fever. Distro Fever, where we cover the latest hot distro releases and news. So what's new in the distro world? I've seen BSDs at
0: 11.2. Uh, Linux Mint 19. It's based off of Ubuntu 18.04, the long-term, long-term support version. Cool. I know Tony's a big Linux Mint user. I, I use it for uh, my parents and um, the folks whose computers i support i've long since switched them from windows and then i don't get repeat calls and it's great
1: yes yeah i gotta admit you know having uh my family on linux is so much better as well uh linux and chromebooks i think those are kind of the chromebooks from all those it's just too easy when someone i want a cheap computer cheap computers don't always run linux well and but chrome runs pretty good on some of those uh you know um tails has a new one and i like tails i have done a couple reviews of it and i'll probably now that they have uh, a 3.8 is out i'll probably review that they actually have an interesting release cycle because they release a lot because it's a standalone live distro so every time there's no updating it so anytime there's any changes to the Tor protocol uh they re-spin it so definitely stay up to date with it if you care about security but i like it because it's Ideally, you know, you boot it off a of USB and you can tinfoil hat yourself into a Tor.
0: <laughs> Especially with some of the uh, GPG or PGP um, bugs that came out recently. Yeah. Definitely want to keep that up up to date if you're using Tails. Yep. Um, yeah, because it has all the e-fail um, OpenPGP
1: updates in it. That's, I know, a big piece of it. You know, kind of an aggravation, um, and I, I don't blame Cloudflare for this, but it's just the nature of the beast. There's not enough Tor nodes, and so many people attack things using Tor that Cloudflare frequently blocks people using Tor on a lot of websites that have more restrictive uh, things on there. So when you're browsing with Tor, it becomes more and more difficult to browse with because so many sites just say, oh, you came from a Tor node that's known, here, just blocked. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but I, when I've done the demos, I've noticed some websites are kind of, they don't like it. They do the are you a robot all the time, and sometimes you can't even get past it. So,
0: so what if I'm a robot?
1: So what if I'm a robot? I think like one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, the, run more nodes. That's the kind of solution there. What else we got? Alpine Linux has a release. Um, uh, I've used Alpine uh, containers when trying to make really tiny uh, container images um, okay. for, for old, old jobs that I've done. Um, if you have, like, let's say Debian or CentOS in a container and then you put your software stack and updates into it. Sometimes it can get up to about 900 megs over a gig. That's really, really bulky. Alpine Linux, um, which doesn't use uh, glibc, they use their own uh, C library called Muscle, M-U-S-L. You put put the uh, Alpine and your piece of software, and then you'll be maybe at like 50 to 100 megs, for a container. Now, when you're constantly rebuilding containers and deploying the software, all of that saved time adds up.
1: Well, not only that, cloud storage is not free.
0: That's true, too. So that yeah.
1: that's really one of those things that one gig, oh, yeah, and then you spin up 30 more containers, or, you know, that next thing you know, that's, well, 30 more gigs. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty good thing. I think we're going to see more and more of that because um, I've noticed that, and I don't know where the, where the middle of the road is. We've discussed this before, is the, the cloud creep of all these companies slowly charging a little bit more for this or a little bit more for that um, for storage in the cloud. So it's a uh, it's a definite issue. <laughs> Use small containers. Um, kind of a related question. I'm curious about this. What's the speed between the communications between uh, the container and the host or even between two containers, like the networking speed between them? It's... theoretically unlimited, uh, but what happens when you run that? I I thought it might be a fun little... That'll be a fun test to do. Uh, The reason I bring it up is because I've noticed uh, with Zen Server, there's a 12 gigabit link between two virtual machines on the same host. So it just happens to be at 12 gigs. I don't know if it's a limitation or what. But then I tested on another virtualization stack. I think it was the KVM one. It's 16 gigs. And I don't know if someone just set these numbers... Or how that works? Like, I just I get I use iPerf just for basic testing. I get 16 gigs on the uh, KVM EMU uh, that was rolled into uh, Unraid, and I get 12 gigs on the one that's rolled into the Zen server stack. So did someone just set a number? Like you communicate this fast? <laughs>
0: Let's do a deep dive episode about that. Yeah, I sounds think,
1: fun. Yeah, because it kind of, um, when you're building applications and containers, one of the advantages, and this is one of the reasons that, and this came up in the SQL on Linux talk we did at Microsoft, was one of the advantages uh, was a couple of big data companies had signed up and started using the beta of it. They found that running SQL in a container, uh, solve latency issues on the fabric switching because they could only switch previously um, with certain amounts of latency. It removed the latency, and they were doing real-time weather reporting, and it made their processing just absolutely faster. Interesting. Yeah, they said, so that running SQL in a container on Linux just solved a major bottleneck they were having that they were working with hardware vendors for solving because they used to have to run a Windows server over here and then a Linux stack over here, and then you're supposed to have these things talking, and they were using... 40 gigabit connections between them
0: if they i'm i'm really curious if they were to install a a linux-based os on a piece of hardware and then install the uh sql database on that um what kind of performance would have versus a container right they got faster on the container they were Uh, uh hmm okay
1: Yeah, I I thought it was interesting. They did too. Um, That's actually why they were there at the Microsoft event, because they were the early adopters of SQL on Linux, because uh, they use some type of AI system to help predict the weather. And the new SQL had that, I forget that language they use, but I know it's based loosely on uh, Python, but it's an AI language that's built into the new version of SQL. So as much as we want to, we would say, hey, why don't you run MariaDB? And I go, because everything's developed for this language, and we have a set of Tesla GPUs to calculate weather, and it all works inside of SQL. And it's already developed. <laughs> so that's why we keep buying licenses for it. <laughs> all right. We got off topic, but I think we ran through the distros.
0: Um, there, one oh, last one more? thing. Uh, uh, this actually might interest you. There is a release for AV Linux, audiovisual Linux.
1: Oh, yeah. I've seen that.
0: Um, doing a quick search. It says AV Linux is a Linux-based operating system aimed for multimedia content creators. It's available for I386 and x86-64 architectures with a kernel customized for maximum performance and low-latency audio production.
1: So interesting. We used to use, uh, I believe it was a similar or spun off of, and it was a custom one we got from another podcast group. Uh, before I took over editing the podcast, uh, we used to use some of the more advanced tools. Now, the mixing board tools in Linux, uh, you need real time because you can't have latency between your drum beats, your your dub woop woops won't go right. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, that being said, it's an entirely detailed mixing board. When I took over editing because our editing is a lot simpler, I just use Caden Live now, but we used to use this in a VM. Uh, for the editing, we just didn't use all the, it's like there was like a million buttons. We only used three of them. And uh, then I said, let's simplify this. Cause what Tony taught me the process, I'm like, okay, there's an, I, cause I do video editing, I'm like, you can use, au- you can use Caden Live for audio editing. And because the only thing we do is drop some bumps in here and there for the sound drops, I said, that's easy. And we cut out the coughs and sneezes and away we go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, this is a really cool thing. If you're in a music production, Linux has come a long way. You can produce, uh, really cool stuff with it um, with that and setting those things up is tedious Run this version of Linux and it saves you a lot of trouble mm. they what is that they use jack to control audio you ever heard of it I have not it is a it is painful and it is tricky to set up <laughs> it is uh, there's a lot there's more it, it, it's a complicated project so mm. good news is it's probably completely integrated and works with it it's a it's a different way to manage audio in Linux. It's not, what is, I forget the name of the common one we use. Elsa? Elsa. Yeah, it's way harder than Elsa, and it just doesn't work simply. But it gives, like, individual programs very detailed control over the sound, and it manages all of that, too. So, all right, well, that's cool, though. All right, let's jump into the news here.
0: Tech news and views.
1: So, barring Microsoft's purchase of, uh, GitHub. What else happened in the last month? Let <laughs> uh, me to go ahead and start, Phil. Sure. So, the Linux Foundation. Uh, I found this interesting, and this was a started a little bit of a pre-show discussion. We I mean, saved it for during the show. The Linux Foundation and Dice.com's 2018 Open Source Jobs Report shows the demand for open source savvy employees is stronger than ever. I believe it was a seventy percent increase. Um, and there's a link to the ZDNet article, but I think all these companies are realizing. Okay, Microsoft's going all in on open source. We probably should too, and they probably mostly the, I think every Fortune 500 company has at least a pretty strong uh, relationship to it. And of course, if you're talking about the cloud, you're talking about running it on Linux stack. So, I think that's just driving the job growth like through the roof right now in that category. Yeah, the, the cloud runs on Linux. The cloud runs on Linux, even Microsoft's cloud. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of interesting, but uh, there's just I don't know if not enough people are interested in it because I've run into so many people, um, even a project being field when working on it with another person. The person's just not a Linux person. Whatever they use for their dev stuff, they're all Windows. And it's like, why not? And they go, yeah, I've been wanting to start in it.
0: And More and more <clears throat> now than ever, I believe that it's becoming <laughs> the year of the Linux desktop. Yeah. So as, as the job market grows um, by leaps and bounds, um, we'll start seeing more... Uh, Linux users, I believe, um, I get recruiter phone calls all the time uh, about, "Hey, we've got this senior Linux job." Uh, blah blah blah. I never see junior Linux positions. Yeah, you're not going to find more senior people. You need to uh, train up the juniors to yep. fill those roles. Um, so I, so if you're a Linux recruiter happening to listen to this, check out the local colleges um, and. Adver- uh, advertise jobs to the teachers there. I got my first job in college uh, doing um, Linux work uh, that way. One of, one of the good notes in here is uh, part
1: of it was Dice did an employee employer survey, and apparently more and more companies are willing to pay their current staff to get Linux certified, send them a training, and uh, go through that. So that's good. And of course, there's plenty of training available at the Linux Foundation. So yeah, also YouTube. YouTube, yeah, there's even a couple of videos on Ansible <laughs> <laughs> that are rather popular. So, yeah, that's and you know that's kind of when one of my things on open source. Uh, I our friend uh, Jay has a learnlinux.tv Linux TV and he started to post a couple more videos. Finally, he started to get a little bit, I'm always bugging him. I said, when are you going to post more stuff? He's got a great tutorial on getting started with like SSH keys, tmux. I learned tmux from his video, like all the little shortcuts and tricks to it. And, uh, he's wrote four books now on yeah, Linux. So, Jay's awesome. Yeah. Great guy. So there's a lot of us out there that are putting stuff out there. And of course we mentioned, uh, Uh, Michael Lucas, he's got plenty of deep dives into uh, Linux-related stuff. so It's available out there, so if you want to get into Linux, now's a great time. uh, Read some books and apply. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Linux Foundation, Google becomes a platinum member of there, which isn't too surprising. There's a lot of people, um, and uh, his name eludes me, but uh, when there was an announcement, there was some controversy when they announced a new version of Git because the maintainer of Git um, the protocol happens to work for Google and he posted on the Google blog and everyone's like, wait, Google owns Git? And I'm like, no, he just works there and he doesn't. He posts on a Google blog because <laughs> that's where he posts. Uh, but, so it's kind of nice to see that they're... Uh, I, I, I actually was surprised to learn that they joined. I assumed they had been a member for a long time at that level. I
0: believe they've got uh, more than a couple people who work on various aspects of the kernel. Yeah. So even if... Even though they have joined as a platinum member, uh, Google themselves is still donating um, their time and money to improving the kernel yes. and various aspects of the open, the free open source uh, world.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a lot of that. So the people who work as their day job fixing whatever things they do privately for Google, because Google's uh, allows, it, well, actually, it doesn't have to say allow. I would say encourages people to work on personal projects. Um, Those people maintain when they're not updating code for something for Google, they're maintaining open source uh, stacks, which there's, of course, a business interest Google has because they run all this stuff on a lot of the open source stacks. You know, I didn't have it in a news article, but uh, Google's actually going to start allowing – no one knows exactly how it's going to look, but it's in the canary builds of the Chromebooks. They're going to allow some uh, dev packages to be installed on them. No one knows how the interface is going to look. So far it looks like it's all command line driven, but I thought that was kind of interesting. So they're they're actually making the Chromebooks even more Linux friendly, which is interesting.
0: Very cool. Um, I pulled up the main Git maintainer's name. It's Junio Hamano. Okay. On GitHub, he is the Gitster.
1: Oh, the Gitster.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, he only writes
1: the protocol. <laughs> Uh, That scares – this is one wonderful thing about open source is that the code is there. Someone needs to pick up the torch and run with it. But it's also scary when you think about open source when you're like he maintains the Git protocol that massively controls our code bases. Like it's him. (laughs) It's like when we were talking about uh, uh, Eric Raymond. Like, oh, yeah, the time protocol has a problem. When will Eric fix it? Like it only runs the internet and is the underlying plumbing for everything is the NTP protocol, but Eric maintains it.
0: <laughs> yep. There is a Linux Foundation project called the Core Infrastructure Initiative um, okay. that helps allocate resources to uh, these people.
1: Okay. That's definitely a good thing because, uh, you know, we don't want anything. Eric's a wonderful person. And uh, if you don't know who Eric Raymond is, uh, sometimes a controversial uh, person. But uh, contributions, he's made many to the Linux community. And he's also author of The Cathedral and the Bazaar, which predicted a lot of the uh, open source development concepts that we live with today. It's an interesting book. I need to reread it. It's been forever. It's probably been since the 90s since I read it. Last, (laughs) Have you
0: read it? I have not. Oh, you actually you should are read. we going to read this together and do a book report? We'll do episode? a book report.
1: You know what? We should revisit the cathedral and the bazaar. All right. So it is uh it's a it's a great book that talks about software development and concepts and it's a short read and it's it's really interesting. And it's open source, it's all free. You can just get the book off of Eric Raymond's website. Uh moving on. So, new data exposure, 100 million sensitive data records, and this is the Firebase vulnerability. This is the tyranny of the default. Am
0: I correct, Phil, that by default it's insecure? Yes, it is. Um, this was a design that they chose. So, any any user that has access to a record, by default, all users in that group or permission level also have access to all of the records. Uh, so... This is
1: one of those problems, and this Firebase is a company that uh, made kind of like if you're being an app developer, you want to just use a simple system to handle authentication. So you use this company, and this company was purchased by Google a number of years ago. So it's surprising that it took this long uh, for this to come out as the problem Uh but no one was looking apparently. That whole tyranny of the default thing of, yeah, you can make it more secure, but by default we just made it easy. And a lot of developers go, well, if you make a system and I can just outsource my <laughs> add-ons for this and you make it easy, great. And I'll just use it however it came out of the box. And uh, we if your hands are on a keyboard, you work in computer security. That's been one of my mantras. At some level, if your hands are on the keyboard at all, it, whether Whatever part of the development cycle, you should have security mindset. You should go through some at least basic security training because at some point you may make a decision like, oh, I outsourced my uh, authorization to these guys. But did you stop to look at what the permissions were?
0: Why, I, I wish that more engineers would think about the implications of their decisions Yes, when they choose to um, use products like this.
1: Yeah, that's... Uh, but then
0: again, I think this goes back to the uh, core concept of RTFM.
1: Oh, no one does that. <laughs> <laughs> Read that funny manual? No. <laughs> no one stops to do that.
0: Now, um, Firebase Hold My Beer, Exactus, is uh, a company that leaked 340 million uh, people's information most recently. Oh, boy. Um there was an unencrypted Elasticsearch database that held uh, two terabytes of details on the personal interests of, quote, pretty much every U.S. citizen, end quote.
1: Nice. So, again,
0: uh, default uh, Elasticsearch with no authentication, unencrypted traffic to it. Boom. There's your data. And my data.
1: And my data. <laughs> and no your data. And our 340 million other datas. Um, <laughs> I follow a lot of the security researchers like Troy Hunt and a few others on uh, Twitter. And I seen a tweet this morning that made me laugh. And they're not disclosing what they're working on, but it, it kind of like a report coming soon. And it, he said, I've not seen this before. And he sent us uh, a screenshot of some of the tables. They were storing the hash. Great. Of the password. Next to the plain text, and that was the other. It says hashed password, plain text password. He goes, these two things should never <laughs> be in the same database together. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a reason we hash things, and then you don't bo- you hashed it, but then you also stored the plain text. Report coming soon. <laughs> yeah, there's once again, no
0: one was thinking about the security of it. Um, there is a, a Firefox in in an upcoming Firefox release. Um, Troy Hunt's Have I Been Pwned is going to be integrated with the uh, Firefox uh, password store. Nice. Um, so I believe that's going to be the same method that uh, 1Password uses, where a hash of the password is submitted and the hash gets checked? Yes. Um, don't quote me on that, but it's something that I read about recently.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty cool. So, so a lot of people don't realize. So he has a have I've been pwned, and then he has has my password been used, uh, which is a, related to it. And that's what Phil's talking about. This is interesting. A lot of people are like, well, I can't put my password in because then I'm typing my password online. I'm like, no, no, he actually... Um, the way his system works is, and he's very open about how it works, he's using a Java, uh, JavaScript in a page, so he never transmits your password at all. It completely hashes it, then checks the hash against the known hash tables, and that's how it's determining whether or not your password has been uh, pwned. Also, if you follow Troy Hunt, he talks about just how much compute time that has cost him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he started breaking that down, too. He's like, this is how much, because it's doing the calculations, and uh, that's also interesting. Apparently, a lot of people are putting their passwords in there, and I put a couple of ones that I used from forever ago but are still in my head, my early days of lower entropy password because younger Tom in the 90s. But I still have my 90s passwords in my head.
0: Password one.
1: Yeah, they're just they're shorter <laughs> passwords. And um, it's kind of funny uh, that they still have not been pwned. I mean, you know, back when I thought hacker type was cool, so you do these substitutions. I mean, it's still nine characters with some substitutions, so it's not... But I typed it so many times when I was younger, it was in my password for everything. Because 1995, Tom just used the same password all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I learned. <laughs> uh, moving on. TL Bleed, a crypto-leaking CPU attack that Intel reckons won't. we shouldn't worry about and won't uh, break everything. Uh, except for the fact that there's a 98%... 99.8% success rate of extracting 256-bit keys with it.
0: That, uh, that is on uh, Coffee Lake processors. Yes. Um, on Skylake, it's uh, 99, also 998 And on Broadwell Xeons, it's 98.2%. Regardless of those numbers, that's terrifying. That's are- basically, here's your data, and now I can see it too.
1: Yes. So TLB relies on the use of hyperthreading. And if you're not familiar with hyperthreading, it's a technology present in most modern Intel chips. They process, can have a number of cores, two, four, eight, and so on, and each separately fetching execution code from memory. With hyperthreading enabled, each core enables execute threads, typically two, simultaneously. This means two threads run on the same time, on the same core, and share infrastructure with the one core. Now, that's an important thing. To think about because you're taking a core, and because of how fast CPUs run, we can double it by hyper threading it and running two things on there. The solution that FreeBSD came up with until a better one can uh, do is they implemented right away it was like we're just turning this off, and that makes sense to turn off hyper threading as a security precaution. The bigger picture is we have to rewrite software. Normally, software doesn't care what core it runs on. So what you would do to fix this problem from a software, and this comes back to rewriting kernels, is say anything that's cryptographically secure will not run with a hyper-threaded core. It can only run single core mode. That way nothing else could potentially go in that core, or you only take threads from that particular process and run them inside the multi-threaded core. Everything else runs in different cores. So now you're talking about telling the kernel to decide which cores get to run based on a flag that you would have to implement upon compile time, which means this isn't getting fixed anytime
0: soon. No. No, not at all. This is going to be another long drawn out um, campaign, just like Spectre and Meltdown, which have also received uh, various patches within the past couple weeks. Yep, and And we will continue to keep seeing that. Yeah, and unfortunately, what this means, especially if the
1: result of this, and it's going to be introduced at uh, next Black Hat conference, there's going to be a paper on. I I think think that's coming August. August, yeah, that's when that's when the CVE will be uh, public and. Um, it seems pretty scary from people who are under NDA, like uh, Theo. Um, his name is in here. so I forgot his last name.
0: Uh, Theo DeRatte.
1: Theo DeRat. He's under NDA, but he wrote an article on it. Uh, I will find and leave it in the show notes because I'd read it uh, before. But um, he can't cover the details until the NDA expires. But he's like, it, it, he's the guy that says, We're just turning off hyper-threading after I read this. That's, that's like, what do you think, Leo? I'm under NDA. But I, please note, I turned off hyperthreading.
0: Um, I, the, the way that. Uh, the b s d community found out about this was actually out of band, I yeah. believe, um, so there was uh, the Intel communication that had gone out, but then the someone on the b s d mailing list yes i believe um, and then b s d issued some patches, and then the internet found out from that
1: yes. And that's actually where part of the problem is they considered it very selective of who got to know about this. And uh, Intel has been dancing around with marketing speak of who gets to find out and who doesn't. And this is obviously a really big deal. Now, where this... These problems are not as likely to affect you on your computer unless you run a lot of random software. Uh, but where the devastation comes in is the same thing that Hartley, or that the Spectre Meltdown did was they devastate the cloud infrastructure. Because cloud infrastructure, it has to be at cutting edge. They actually can never get computers fast enough um, for the demand and load. So when you say we're going to change your entire infrastructure by 4% it varies on workload. In speed reduction, the entire cloud just got 6% slower. That means we need even more computers that we're already trying to meet demand for, and the consumer pays the cost. So that's part of the reason cloud infrastructure costs went up very slightly, was to compensate for the fact that they got to go buy more compute power because they just took a hit because of a patch. So the implications are far-reaching on this pretty amazing to think about too and directly related to it is the lazy, lazy fp state restore a security vulnerability in intel core chips uh, the vulnerability is caused by a flaw in the speculative execution now this goes back to the floating point problem and uh you know this is another i remember the first floating point bug in intel when we used to have uh, intel can't do math I don't know if you remember that. That was probably when (laughs) Phil was in high school. (laughs) Man, when was that? It was like in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a floating point error uh, found in one of the Intel chips. So this is, yeah. AMD has been throwing some serious shade at Intel. They, um... They've been making fun of them. Uh, if you didn't hear about the processor buyback, Intel gave away all these uh, high-end CPUs, and Intel said anyone who wins the Intel contest will buy your C- will trade your CPU for one of our new ThreadRippers, so you can come into the, come out of the dark ages uh, with more cores or something like that. So, <laughs> I, I don't blame AMD because um, a lot of these executive problems, Intel did a lot of engineering um, with. thinking about the security implications like there's got to be some engineer and I believe there was uh, someone wrote an article back in 2006 that all these cores and hyperthreading could potentially cause these bleed issues so there was at least one person waving the flag that was told he was a tinfoil hat who feels really vindicated now I can't remember (laughs) his name sorry
0: (laughs) I found uh, some Pentium jokes related to this Um, so the the old uh, Intel can't do math joke was the Pentium FDIV bug and the joke is, how many Pentium designers does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. One point nine 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 zero and change, but that's close enough for non-technical people. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, it's it's a good opportunity for AMD
1: to seize seize the moment and uh, all these little Intel flaws, uh, hope that I know of. Now, there was that disclosure, and I think it kind of got debunked. That company, um, they think it was part of a stock position move. They wanted to say there was all these flaws in AMD that were major. They did not use proper uh, disclosure methods. But we still haven't really seen anything come out of that, whether or not it was true or not that there's a flaws in the AMD Threadripper chips. They had made claims there were, but I've not – followed up on any of that they also didn't use standard vulnerability they wrote like a hit piece on it they created a website it sounded more like a marketing like amd has these horrible chips the world's going to collapse um and they admitted in the articles that yes we have stock interest in AMD. and everyone's like why would you even admit that in an article unless you're trying to avoid an sec problem (laughs) so that was no they said well we just want to let people know and like "Eh." so so far it's a there's a lot, and this is where the attacks are going. We've done a good job with SSH and OpenVPN and all these security things. Let's attack the hardware layer. <laughs> uh, and speaking of more attacks, Zip Slip vulnerability. That is in the. This is a. Uh, how do you refer to that? It's the escaping. By using a lot of backslashes and dots, so you can get to the root level of things. And this was a found. This is a long time uh, flaw found in a lot of the tar and zip libraries, in the uh, zip and rar libraries. So I noticed all the updates before the disclosure. Good news is they all got patched. But unfortunately, some things IoT will never be patched. <laughs> <laughs> so this vulnerability means what this probably less a feature for end users, except. The antivirus people. Sorry, antivirus people. The library that was compiled into most of your antivirus used these libraries. They used 7-zip. 7-zip was based on the zip-slip vulnerability. So now all these antivirus uh, things became the vector of attack. This is one of the fallouts for the Windows users. The Linux users, I mean, someone has to compile in something in TAR and then uh, try to use that vulnerability. It's less likely because we generally only take things from signed sources that we run on servers, so it's still great to be patched, less of a risk. The bigger risk is all these antivirus companies. And I've preached this before. The antivirus has become the point of attack many, many times. Uh, There was a large-scale vulnerability found several years ago. You could take over an Exchange server if they were running an antivirus on it by Norton. Only if. The Exchange server didn't have a flaw. They had a flaw that all you had to do was send a well-crafted zip file, and it would give you root privileges uh, because the Norton tool was based on a really old, old library, which was full of flaws, and they never bothered updating it. The library had been updated for years. I think
0: that goes back to a previous conversation we've had about maintenance. It might not be glamorous, but you need to do it.
1: Yep. And what happened at the Norton people is they kept releasing new versions of the Antivirus. So Antivirus was newly compiled and recent, but they had based it, They just never updated their version internally. So they were pulling a four-year-old uh, open source library that they included in there. They were in compliance with GPL. They commented on all of it, but they just didn't pull the new version. They just pulled the old. And no one knows why. Someone update. No one updated that repository. are like, yeah, it sits in the code here. We know there's a new one on the internet.
0: Why would we pull that one? <laughs> Got the software. Job's done, boss. <laughs> yep, and that, that's my list of the news. What do you got, Phil? I've got uh, something interesting. Um, uh, Senator Wyden uh, from Oregon wants to include WireGuard, uh, that VPN service, as a potential piece of new government security tech. Um, so I thought that that was pretty interesting. He says, quote, two aging technologies, uh, IPsec and OpenVPN, are currently used for most government VPNs. Um, cybersecurity researchers now know that the complexity of these old technologies can completely undermine their security. Um, so he's pitching uh, WireGuard as a potential replacement for that, which I thought was interesting. Um, so then.
1: Uh, I'm happy to see IPsec go away.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, we had recently talked about WireGuard on a previous episode where we looked into the Streisand VPN. Um, so when Tony gets back, we, we're going to get to hear all about uh, his use case um, and how it was over in China behind the Great Firewall. Ooh, yes. Um, so uh, WireGuard claims that it's as easy to configure and deploy as SSH. Um, it's capable of roaming between IP addresses, which is useful for those uh, who have flaky internet, Uh, It, quote, uses state-of-the-art cryptography, um, but then on their website, there's a comment that says, don't use this in production yet, but that might be out of date. Um, I have it on uh, good authority that uh, it has been audited.
1: Okay. They just haven't published it
0: yet. Yes. So the website could be out of date.
1: Yeah, that's that can be an issue because that's one thing um, when people always ask me about our VPNs, and I think WireGuard's come up when people uh, email me. I've done so many, I've done a lot of uh, OpenVPN, including how to run your own OpenVPN on Linode. I've got a whole tutorial on that, and it's so easy to do now. Um, but that being said, the uh, WireGuard has come up before. But I, I always my myself because vpns mean they secure my traffic i have vpns running places and i care greatly about the data that's why it's under vpn uh so i'm always hesitant to try new products until they've gone through some type of uh, third-party security audit so hope that's wonderful news that they're going through it
0: um there's also a bullet point that says uh, it's meant to be easily implemented in very few lines of code and easily auditable for security vulnerabilities um, it uses a combination of high-speed cryptographic primitives, and uh, WireGuard is inside the Linux kernel. It's a kernel module. Oh, okay. So, that, so um, interesting uh, fun fact about that. Do you know how uh, WireGuard was started? Mm-mm. The the guy who writes WireGuard uh, initially used it to exfiltrate data from servers that he hacked. Oh so he would install this kernel module, um, send uh, knock like uh, knock packets to say, hey, open up a port okay um, and they contained all of the uh, correct ciphers and Macs and all of that And then the port would open, he could exfiltrate the data and then if you did a port scan, you wouldn't see this process running because it didn't respond to there wasn't the correct knock packet.
1: Yes I, I have thought, and you know, I just don't know why it's not implemented more. That knock packets. When I, I remember talking about that at a security conference in two thousand and two, uh, yeah, I know. We it was a hacking conference. It was great. I spent the weekend there, and we all got in trouble. But <laughs> 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 not related to hacking, though. No. It just got the party got wild. Um, the uh, but knock packets was like this. Uh, the people that were there. There was a guy from was this guy. Uh, was a couple hackers names that are still um, around, but they had set that up. And I thought it was just the coolest thing ever. I'm like, this solves the port scan problem this, and everything. And uh, it's I don't know why it's still not implemented. Like, it seems like a great way to do it. Like, if you can just establish, set up knock packets before you do something, the patterns are so infinite that it would just eliminate having open ports on there. When you have two known devices, you just create a knock pattern between the two of them, and that's the first initiation before they actually just
0: listen on a port.
1: That's pretty cool. Oh. Now, scary part. WireGuard kernel. Yeah,
0: I've got my reservations about that, That,
1: too. Yeah, OpenVPN not kernel module seems like safer, so... Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: (laughs) Uh, Time will tell. Uh, Moving on to another scary thing. Um, (laughs) The NSA, uh, they've admitted that they had a massive call slurp, um, and they are uh, deleting huge amounts of american call records nope, quote <laughs> the scale is certain to be massive well of course it is <laughs> well
1: maybe maybe because there's a they maybe they ran into a shortage of hard drives so they have they're just making room for someone else's call logs <laughs> we'll,
0: we'll clear out all the data from the 80s and the 90s yeah that's
1: that's what i really feel is going on here i absolutely uh my, my biggest problem is the lack of oversight the NSA has. That's exactly how these things happen. Um, it, no matter how you feel about Snowden, one thing he did point out was the absolute lack of oversight and things gone wrong inside of uh, the agency because of that, because they just start doing stuff and no one told them no. So there's no one watching them to tell them that's not a good idea. Don't slurp at all. <laughs> Behave.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's all the uh... – news articles for me because we we covered tl bleed yeah. um so, we covered a lot so onto uh my gaming corner yes um wine now has better hyperthreading support in uh wine 3.x so that's awesome except tl bleeds here so if you've disabled hyperthreading, well that doesn't really affect you anymore yeah. so well good for wine good for wine um wine also now has dxvk driver support which means that you can play skyrim on linux using Ooh. um an intel hd uh graphics very cool and dxvk is a vulcan based direct 3d 11 implementation for linux and wine and vulcan is a low overhead cross-platform 3d graphic api um slated to replace Open GPL, Okay. So, so that's interesting stuff happening in the graphics community, and especially being able to play more games on Linux. Hey, bring it on. Absolutely.
1: This is um, the year of the gaming Linux desktop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, um, I remember looking at the end of uh, 2017. I think it was something like 60% of the top game, the top 10 list on Steam was available on Linux as well. So uh, a lot of popular games have ported over, and Windows 10 is uh, so well hated in the gaming community. Like <laughs> Microsoft, like if they, they're nail, they're just putting the nails in their own coffin with that. Like no gamer likes Windows 10. So we have a lot more gamers looking into. They've uh, contacted us when we build gaming desktops. They're like, "Hey, uh, can we run Linux on this?" I've looked at a couple of my games, and so the inquiries are slowly coming in. That's good to hear. Yeah, um, they're not. It's still not ready for prime time yet because. It comes down to, does your
0: game work out? The one that you like is that's, yeah. League of Legends, it takes me uh, several tries to join a game um, to wait for the client to finish crashing, reload, and go through that loop. Sometimes I can actually get into it. Which is fun when it happens. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's really going to be the determining factor. But I think the game
1: devs are probably going, you know, we don't mind. I mean, the game devs are going, We're, we just want to go where the users are. So if the users start moving there, the game devs will go, we'll compile for it. I mean, that's, they just want people to play the game. That's, they're, they don't, they're not beholden. As a matter of fact, they'd probably like less problems because no one wants to run tech support for these of why my game won't run. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Windows updated again. So. All right. That's about
0: all I have. Yep.
1: And that's it for us. We don't have any music uh, because that's usually a Tony thing. So me and Phil are not. I, I mean, we'll play something copyrighted and get in trouble.
0: <laughs> we'll we'll hum a, a 56K dial up modem.
1: Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been listening to Sunday Morning Linux Review, episode 278. Will the zip slip cause a teal bleed? Hopefully, we've answered that for you. <laughs> Boy, that's a, so many vulnerabilities. We, there was a lot to cover, though. That was uh, the big news that happened in Linux. So This is uh, Tom Lawrence. And Phil Pirata, And thanks for listening to us Babylon. See you next
0: time. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-258. Seven zero zero nine. I'm John. Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my eight-bit metal ass. That's bite where the Y. <laughs>